New books in Southeast Asian studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, building on the expertise of over 300 specialists at the University of Sydney for research, education and partnerships in Southeast Asia. For details about upcoming events and opportunities, New books in Southeast Asian studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, building on the expertise of over 300 specialists at the University of Sydney for research, education and partnerships in Southeast Asia. For details about upcoming events and opportunities, visit sydney.edu.au forward slash Sydney hyphen Southeast hyphen Asia hyphen center. That's center spelled C-E-N-T-R-E. And by the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned institution for policy relevant research on the politics, economics, societies, and cultures of Asia and the Pacific. For more information, email GAI at Griffith.edu.au or visit the website griffith.edu.au forward slash Asia Institute. That's Asia Institute as one word. The relationship between religion and economic activity has attracted generations of scholars working in myriad settings. In recent years, many have turned to questions of how Islamic ideas are generative of economic activity, to Islamic finance and capital, and to the relationship between contemporary Islam and capitalism more broadly. In a new book on economic life in Malaysia, Patricia Sloan-White builds on this work by asking not only how the spread of global capitalism transforms the lives of Muslims, but how capitalism itself empowers the spread of Islam. The book is Corporate Islam, Sharia and the Modern Workplace, published in 2017 by Cambridge University Press. Its author is an Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Delaware, and she's speaking with me, Nick Cheesman, a Fellow at the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, and host of new books in Southeast Asian Studies. Patricia, thank you for taking the time to talk about your new book. Nick, thank you so much for inviting me to do so. Let's begin with the key question, what's corporate Islam? Oh, well, that's the key question indeed. I would define corporate Islam as a very conscious, very Islamic paradigm for doing and organizing business and business life in Malaysia. I think it's a set of ideas and practices that are increasingly in place for many Malaysian Muslims, especially for the company owners and corporate executives that I've spoken to who would argue that corporate life, just like private and public life in Malaysia, and like all life should be for Muslims, should be increasingly in compliance with Sharia. So that corporate Islam is the way in which a corporation, its policies, its products, its profits, and especially, and really as an anthropologist, this is what I'm most interested in, its people should be fully guided by Sharia. And as I say in the book, corporate Islam means that in corporate setting, all of the practices, the behaviors, the experiences that occur in modern corporate life will be guided and informed by Sharia. And so what that means is that when you enter corporate Islamic workplaces in Malaysia, as I have in my fieldwork, you discover that the very principles organizing economic life, organizing work life, organizing the structure of a corporation and what happens there is increasingly Sharia-inspired and Sharia compliant. Now, a lot of people, when they ask me what I study in Malaysia, and I say I'm interested in corporate Islam, assume that I'm studying Islamic economics. And I do want to make the distinction that that 
isn't really my concern in this book. As you mentioned in your comments, um, the relationship between capitalism and Islam is one of long-standing interests to scholars. And for a lot of people, when you connect capitalism to Islam, what that means is that you create an Islamic economy. An Islamic economy, of course, is an economy in which Sharia determines the commercial transactions, the financial dealings, financial operations, which generally then do not include interest or what is called riba. And for anyone who knows anything about Islamic economics, they may know that Malaysia is one of the innovators in Islamic economics. The Islamic economy in Malaysia is huge and growing. Malaysia promotes itself as one of the greatest innovators in Islamic economics. But what corporate Islam is, is not merely the study of Islamic economics. Because what I suggest is that corporate Islam isn't about the financial rules of Sharia, avoiding Reba. What it really is, is about the Shariaization, the making of Sharia in business culture and in the organization of corporate life. Because in Malaysia, it's not just the Sharia compliant finance had grown. In this book, I identify the Sharia-informed, Sharia-influenced, Sharia-based worldviews have grown as well. Malaysia is a key site, I think, for examining the relationship between Sharia-mindedness in the economy and Sharia-mindedness and Sharia-compliance, which has grown up in the corporations run by Muslims in Malaysia. So you talk about the corporate Islamic workplace as a place in which there is a Sharia space. What is that Sharia space and how does it inform the work that you do and the argument that you make? As an anthropologist, I've always been interested in, in work and that work is very much a social setting. It's also a social structure in which rules are made and people are required to comply. That's what we are as workers, personnel and employees. I think anthropologists have tended to overlook corporate space as social space, but I think people who study Islam at least in its modern forms, in its contemporary forms, in places like Malaysia and Indonesia, have overlooked how corporate life is in many ways political space. People study political Islam in Malaysia, but I would argue that corporate Islam is a site in which we're not fully our public selves and we're not fully our private selves as we are in all workplaces, but that in corporate Islam, issues of Sharia impacting people's private lives, their public lives, sort of converge in workspace where we are controlled by corporate structures in ways that we perhaps aren't in any other space of our lives. And I argue that by overlooking corporate Islam, we have missed this space where for about you know, eight to 12 hours a day, Muslims are enacting their piety and practices in modern Muslim space in Malaysia, which indeed, I argue, is increasingly Islamic space. The workplace is increasingly for Muslims in Muslim-run corporations, space in which Sharia guides practices, principles, and piety. So I'm acutely interested in what I call this third space between private and between public lives, the space of work, which in the corporations I study is indeed increasingly Islamized. Throughout the book, you compare what for shorthand we might call the Sharia generation of today with an earlier generation that you studied in the 1990s, the Bumiputra generation or the NEP generation, which you say has now been displaced by this new generation. Can you explain those terms and spell out why this comparison is especially important for the argument you're making? In that 
to, to answer that question properly, I, I, I guess I want to start at the beginning of my engagement with Malaysia. I've been studying Malaysia and Islam and the growth of a middle class, the growth of a pro professional class, the growth of entrepreneurship since the mid-1990s. And when I first came to Malaysia in the mid-1990s, Malaysia was very much being influenced by the prime minister at that time, Mohammed Mahathir, the great prime minister who brought about sort of industrialization, dernity, the urge to become corporate and capitalistic among the Malay population. People refer to that time in Malaysia as the NEP years. NEP, or the New Economic Policy, was a set of policies put in place in the 1970s that were to last for 20 years. Many of those policies are still in place. NEP was intended to turn Malays, all of whom are Muslims, into vibrant, entrepreneurial, modern, cosmopolitan, highly educated, up-to-date owners and producers of, of capital. In Malaysia, the Malay Muslims who consider themselves to be the indigenous population vis-a-vis -vis the Malaysian Chinese who came during the colonial period and afterwards, who entered in many ways the modern sector in the 20th century, while Malays tended to stay, or at least this was the stereotype, tended to stay back in the rural sector. In the 1970s, ethnic tensions rose to the point that government, which has always been pro-Malay and, and Malay-oriented, decided to put in place a series policies, the new economic policy, to uplift the Malays, the Muslims in Malaysia. And what that meant was providing them with affirmative action policies, access to excellent secondary and tertiary education, often scholarships to send them overseas to the U.S., to Australia, where a lot of students got their first and second university degrees. Malays were given opportunities to buy houses in the burgeoning suburbs of Kuala Lumpur at a discount, to buy cars at a discount. And all of these policies were intended to create equity between the Malays and the non-Malays, effectively the Chinese. When I went to Malaysia in the mid-1990s, what I wanted to study was the business-mindedness and entrepreneurial culture that NEP had created. And my first book about Malaysia was precisely about that, the NEP generation, I called them. People who had been educated overseas, who were highly westernized, who did business mostly speaking English, where NEP was supposed to uplift the rural poor and make poor Malays active participants in the modern economy. Ultimately, what NEP did was focus pretty much on the creation of an elite, a business elite. And when I studied entrepreneurship in the 1990s, what I effectively was studying was this class of highly westernized, Western business-minded, profit-oriented Malay Muslims succeed and claim that their success was kind of a form of national service on behalf of other Malays. And that really, I think, characterizes the NEP generation. NEP failed in the sense that it didn't produce a lot of powerful capitalists. The people who were successful in NEP, the Malay Muslims who were successful, often were affiliated with politicians. A lot of them served as political proxies and, and economic capitalist proxies for politicians. Now, 
nowadays, when people look back at that time, they argue that being Muslim in Malaysia has changed. In the past, when it meant that being in business success was to push forward the Malay ethnic group vis-a-vis the Chinese, increasingly I hear in the new generation of business people in Malaysia that rather than push forth a Malay agenda, like NEP did, they increasingly want to push forward a Muslim agenda. And many of them, in contradistinction to the NEP generation, think of themselves as Muslims first and Malay second, whereas during NEP, everything was pro-Malay, pro-Malay, pro-Malay. So one of the things that happened alongside of NEP was the increasing Islamization of Malaysia. At the same time that people were becoming urban and modern and more successful and more interested in capitalism and money, Islam also was changing the nation. The government had put in place at the same time many Islamic institutions, Islamic institutions of higher education, Islamic think tanks, expanding the Islamic bureaucracy and expanding Sharia, giving Sharia courts, Sharia judges, Sharia laws a wider remit, increasing the power of Sharia over people's personal lives. Islam became more conservative during that time. And so Really, the people I study now are the product of Islamization. They're the product of a generation of economic development and also a product of a generation of profound Islamization in all sectors of Malaysian life. They think Westernization is not the path that Malaysia should have gone down in the 1990s. They're critical of their own past. They speak of uh, the Malay past as being a past in which they were ignorant of the the nature of, of their Islam and that today Islam is much more present, much more orthodox, much more oriented towards the Middle Eastern core, the Arab core, than it was in the past. There were always people in Malaysia who wanted to purify Malaysian Islam of its sort of cultural, traditional, non-Islamic uh, tendencies. Those people have moved much more to the center in Malaysia, and their influence has become much more mainstream. And therefore, I'd say that the new generation, what I call the Sharia generation, is really the product of Islamization. They think about Islam much more. They think about themselves as Muslims first and Malays second. And this has had a huge effect on how people look at all as producers and profit seekers in a capitalist economy, which is where corporate Islam comes into play. That corporate Islam is a new way of doing business. It's more moral. It's more ethical. It's not Western. It's not about simply a accumulating money to keep with the Chinese. It's about using Islamic understandings to improve the lot of Muslims, to improve the role of Islam in everyday life in Malaysia, and to make sure that Islam is part of people's entire life, that you're not just influenced by Sharia at home and in the public sector, but my argument is you're influenced by Islam profoundly in the space of work during those eight to 10 hours a day you're spending in collar corporate work. You organized the discussion around two general categories of people whom you interviewed, you met them in groups, and you observed them over a seven-year period. One is what you describe as a new kind of power elite, and the other is the cubicle workers and aspiring professionals in these corporations. Let's start, Patricia, as you do with the former. Who are these men of the mosque and the market, as you call them, and what do they do, and from where do they derive their acumen and their authority? 
I've already made the point, I think, that I don't study Islamic economics as such, as an anthropologist. What I'm interested in are the people whose ideologies and backgrounds and power really influence what happens in corporate Islam. And so as I thought about the different kinds of people that I was meeting, it became very clear to me that there were, of course, elite movers and shakers, powerful people, the power elite, and the ordinary people, the workers who are, like personnel anywhere, subject to the ideas, regulations, and policies that they encounter in the workplace. Let me talk first about the men of the mosque and the market, the corporate elites of the Sharia generation. One of the people, groups of people that I became very interested in, and in fact, they were my first entree into studying corporate Islam, were a group of people who are called Sharia advisors. Sharia advisors are highly educated scholars of Islam. They speak Arabic. They've been educated primarily at universities like Al-Azhar in Egypt and the University of Jordan. Many of them come from very elite religious backgrounds in Malaysia. Generally, Sharia advisors are people who have also gotten PhDs in Islamic economics or finance or accounting, not in the Middle East, but in Western universities. Surprisingly, places where you can get a PhD in Islamic economics are places in the United Kingdom, like Newcastle University, Edinburgh, Loughborough, uh, St. Andrews, University of Wales, places like that. So people who are Sharia advisors are vetted by the central bank, and the central bank decides who can be a Sharia advisor, who is someone who can determine whether or not an investment or a financial product is indeed Sharia compliant. Bank Nagara has regulated who can become a Sharia advisor. It has a tremendous number of rules in place for how Sharia advisors will get compensated, how often their decisions will be examined. They get vetted and revetted every two years. This is somewhat unique in the global Islamic economy. Malaysia has regulated Sharia advisory perhaps more than any other jurisdiction in the world. And this is a good thing because what it means is that conflicts of interest, Sharia advisors representing multiple banks, having their alternative opinions about what is compliant and what isn't, is not a problem that you're going to see in Malaysia. You do see it in the Middle East where some Sharia advisors can advise, I've heard, as many as 80 banks. Well, in Malaysia, a Sharia advisor can only advise one bank. And their decisions are highly regulated, highly studied by a group of even more elite Sharia advisors called the Sharia Advisory Council at Bank Nagara. Now, the reason I'm making this point is that Sharia advisors, this small group of elite, highly vetted, highly regulated, generally men, is very cosmopolitan. They're global in orientation. People say they move smoothly in all worlds, Western, Middle Eastern. They speak Arabic. They have religious knowledge that's top-notch. They have academic qualifications that are top-notch. They're financial experts. They produce scholarship like university academics do and publish their scholarship. And it was from a group of these people that I first heard the term that cherry advisors are men of the market and the mosque. And this phrase really resonated with me. This is really what being an elite cherry advisor in Malaysia is all about, that you are sophisticated in your understanding of Islam. 
you're oriented towards Sharia in everything you do, but that you move smoothly in global circles and have global influence. And these guys do have that kind of power. I match this group of people with the CEOs and the corporate executives that figure prominently in my book. And they're connected to each other because CEOs and executives want to ensure that their corporate financial statements are Sharia compliant. And so they seek out advice from Sharia advisors to make sure, in the words of one of them, that their financial statements are detoxified. In other words, that everything they do in the finances of their business is Sharia compliant. But they also, and this is I think where corporate Islam, my understanding of corporate Islam, most comes into play, they seek out Sharia advisors also for business and management knowledge. If they have a question about how to deal with something ethical in everyday business, they call on a Sharia advisor. If they have a question about how to create a Sharia-compliant business environment, they call on a Sharia advisor. They attend Sharia training sessions with Sharia advisors to learn about the principles of Islamic business and how to apply those principles to the everyday running of an organization. So these two groups of people, Sharia advisors, that elite, and CEOs and managers, another Muslim elite, are highly engaged in each other's uh, sort of ideation. But I found other ways in which these people are connected. Many of them belong to the same Islamic pressure groups and Islamic interest groups. In Malaysia, there are an increasing number of Islamic or Islamist pressure groups that are pushing for full Sharia compliance, pushing for Malaysia to become an Islamic state. And many of the Sharia advisors and the top CEOs and managers that I meet are leaders within those organizations. They're connected through their proto-political engagements. They meet each other at study sessions. They study Islam together. Sherry advisors advise on everyday business practices. They network with each other. And it's my argument that together they create a kind of corporate Sharia elite, the people who together are making policies not just for Islamically compliant profit and production, but increasingly the Islamization of the very corporate experience itself, impacting personnel, impacting human resource policies, impacting what happens in the everyday experience of corporate life. And one of the paradoxes that I note in my book is that Sharia advisors in Malaysia, when they advise banks and financial institutions and create Islamic economic products, Sharia advisors in Malaysia are generally thought of as having a relatively flexible, liberal attitude towards the creation of products. There are many investments in Malaysia that are not acceptable in Arab jurisdictions. Malaysia believes that Islamic economics should be updated for modern capitalist life. And that's the attitude that has in many ways expanded the Islamic economy in Malaysia. But paradoxically, when you look at the Sharia that guides what happens within the corporation, within the daily corporate life of personnel and workers. There you see a much more conservative, authoritative, and in many ways inflexible Sharia taking shape. And I would argue that the reason this is happening is because over the past 20 years, 
Malaysia's Sharia itself has become more orthodox, more intrusive, more directive, and has impacted public and private Muslim lives in ways that are relatively new in Malaysia. 20 years ago, Sharia was not as codified. Today, there are many more Sharia laws. There are many more Sharia judges. There are many more Sharia courts. Sharia courts have been updated. Their jurisdiction is stronger. And increasingly, you see that Sharia has a bigger impact on people's personal, private, and public lives. My argument is that that Sharia-mindedness, that orthodox, authoritative, and increasingly conservative Sharia is now what governs daily corporate life in the cubicles and hallways of corporate Islam. Well, it's into the cubicles and hallways that we will go (laughs) in the second half of the discussion. We'll also talk about the gendering of the Sharia workplace, comparisons with other country cases, and more in a moment. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's seasiainstitute as one word. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, where we're meeting with Patricia Sloan-White, author of Corporate Islam. Patricia, let's pick up where we left off in the cubicles with the workers who are employed by these corporations, God's human resources, as you refer to them in the title of Chapter 4. Who are they and why do they seek employment in these corporations? When I say that I study corporate Islam in the cubicles and hallways and at the desks of workers, what that's required is that I really get to know not just the, you know, the big guys that I've been talking about, the power elite that I talked about in the first segment, but that I get to know the everyday practices, pieties, and experiences of the people who work in these corporations. And I would argue what connects the guys, the power elite, with the ordinary workers is the growing understanding among Malay Muslims that Sharia should and will guide their behavior at all times, not just in their private lives, not just in the public sector, but also in every space between them. And of course, that means in the space of work. The people I meet in the cubicles and sitting at desks and operating computers and filling out worksheets and forms and attending meetings and writing memos in the corporate Islamic sector that I've studied want work that's Sharia compliant. They think that's an absolutely reasonable statement. In contradistinction to the elites that I described in the first segment, many of these workers, personnel, employees, are not necessarily elites. They're really people who are the children of the NEP generation I spoke about in the first segment. They're young people, college-educated people, grown up under Malaysian Islamization. I have no question in their minds that Malaysia is an Islamic place for Muslims and that more Islam is desirable in all segments of their lives. And therefore, I think that because they have grown up with Islamic education, many of them did not go to university overseas, have not had elite educations, but increasingly were educated in Malaysian universities. One of the consequences of NEP is that Malaysia now has many, many universities. When the NEP generation got their university degrees, most of them had to go overseas. Since then, Malaysia has invested 
dramatically in tertiary education. Many, many of the tertiary institutions, the public institutions, are mostly peopled by Muslims. And Islam is very much a part of education at both the tertiary level. So many of these young professionals, white-collar workers, have grown up understanding that Islam belongs everywhere, and clearly it belongs at work. I talk about what I call personnel sharia. Personnel sharia is what CEOs and managers and human resource executives decide are the policies that workers must comply with. This is something that's true in any corporate setting. All of us as workers, whether we're academics or clerks in a, in a company, must comply with the rules and regulations of the organization that employs us. This is equally true in corporate Islam. But what is increasingly required of workers is that they will follow Sharia. They will practice Islam. Their Islam will be evident. Their pieties will be evident within the corporate setting. And so what I've learned by spending time in the cubicles and in the lunchroom and hanging out with workers is that their lives are highly regulated. Corporate leaders often insist on prayer within the workplace. At many companies I've studied, praying is mandatory. It starts the day, it ends the day. The pillars of Islam are enforced in many ways. Employees are required to deposit their salaries in Islamic banks. They're required or encouraged to pay their zakat through mandatory salary deduction, just like we might pay for a contribution to a charity through our workplace. Employees are increasingly encouraged to perform sort of social responsibility. Again, this is something we see in the West where on their own time, employees go and serve the community. But in this case, what employees in corporate Islam are required to do is serve the Islamic community. They build orphanages. They repair mosques in the countryside. But I think that one of the most interesting things that I've discovered about corporate Islam is how powerfully personnel sharia shapes and structures gender roles and gender statuses in the workplace. Now, over the past 20 years, Islam in Malaysia has become increasingly, Sharia has become increasingly male-favoring. In Malaysia, the Islamic Family Act, which used to give rights to women in marriage, in cases of polygamy, in cases of custody, in some Malaysian states has been cut back. Increasingly, there's a sense in which men have more power, men have more say in marital life, in family life. And I find this to be reflected in human resource policy. So let me try to describe what I mean. When I first came to Malaysia in the 1990s, Western-educated elite business women generally wore conservative Western clothing. They did not wear the hijab. They served often in management positions. They had companies of their own. Many, many women were entrepreneurs, powerful and outspoken and aggressive. You see a different kind of woman in corporate Islam now, and in many ways you see a different kind of Muslim compliance among women in corporate Islam. I didn't meet any women who ran companies. Surely there are some in Malaysia who do, but when I studied companies where there was this close affiliation with the Sharia elite, these were not companies that were run by women. And so I was in a very masculine elite sector, and this trickles down into the corporate workplace. It determines what happens to women in corporations. Firstly, there are many corporations in Malaysia which insist now that women will wear the hijab, will wear the veil. 
used to be a personal choice. Now it's a personnel choice. It's a human resources obligation. I met corporate officials who said they won't even interview a woman who's not properly dressed wearing the hijab. Many women I met were grateful for this because it meant that in an increasingly Islamic or Islamicized Malaysia, their parents or their husbands were willing to let them work in a workplace that was more Islamic. Women said, well, we're so grateful we don't live in Saudi Arabia where we're not allowed to work. Here the hijab protects us. It allows us to work. It allows us to have careers at all. And also they felt that working in a place where Islam was present in all policy, in all areas of corporate life, made them more pious, more Muslim-oriented, more religious people. And that's what so many of the workers I met wanted. Um, the companies I studied have lots of rules about how men and women will act in the workplace. A lot of companies have rules about intersexual mixing. Men and women in some of the companies I studied are not allowed to be in a room with a closed door. That's considered to be sort of dangerous space where illicit activity could take place. So you see an awful lot of meetings taking place in cubicles, in conference rooms with glass walls. A lot of companies have rules about men and women going out together after work or for lunch, sitting together in the corporate lunchroom. Or if they don't have rules, buy with those rules anyhow, because increasingly there is this sense that workspace has to comply with Sharia, where men and women who are not related to each other will not engage in close physical space with each other. And I want to emphasize that these are new behaviors in Malaysia. When I came to Malaysia in the 1990s, as I said Earlier, I met women who were powerful entrepreneurs, who ran companies, who dressed and moved freely in Western settings, who socialized with men, who worked with men. I met women who were managers, top-level managers. Increasingly in corporate Islam, I'm not seeing that. I'm seeing women who are highly educated, but rarely picked for the top management positions. I'm seeing women who, despite the fact that they have STEM degrees or highly qualified degrees in the hard sciences are working in marketing department, in the training department, in human resources. And generally what people say is that Cheria provides for them to be better placed in those caring kinds of jobs. And that that's better for women. They're better placed in those positions. It's more in line with their personalities, with their feminine capacities. But also what it means is that it allows them in their own minds and in the minds of bosses, greater flexibility in how they'll conduct their work lives. Men and women are perceived to have different demands on their time. Men can be more corporate and serve the corporation in all ways. Women are supposed to be more available to serve their husbands and their children and need to succeed in their domestic lives before they succeed in their business lives. So increasingly, you see women withdrawing from work itself, or if they stay in work, they want jobs that they believe match their time management needs. They can leave early. They can get flexi time so that they can go home and make sure that they're serving the gendered requirements of Islamic womanhood. I'd also like to mention that that's what their husbands want too. I know of multiple situations in which husbands called the human resources department or called a woman's manager to complain about her overtime, to complain about her needing to go to an tra offsite training program. And 
increasingly people told me that husbands had the right to tell a manager that he was withdrawing his wife from work because they didn't approve of what their wives were being asked to do or that they thought their wives were being too influenced by non-Islamic values in the corporation. And so one of my key arguments in the book is that the needs of the family um, the needs of husbands, the needs of parents to know that their daughters are working in Sharia-compliant organizations very much match the policies and procedures that are being put in place by CEOs and managers that require people to behave in Sharia-compliant ways. I further make the argument that the Sharia generation wants to work in corporations like this. Wives want their husbands to work in corporations where men and women are kept at a distance. Malaysia has seen a dramatic increase in polygamy. And increasingly, I, I argue that women want to make sure that their husbands are working in places where men and women are, are kept at a distance from each other. And men want that for their wives as well. This brings up one of the more complicated aspects of my book, and that's that despite the fact that everybody is supposed to be complying with highly regulated sexual distance between men and women, I encountered many, many cases of men speaking to women in ribald and joking fashion about their likely availability for engaging in polygamous relationships with them. I heard a lot of jokes, which to my ear sounded like sexual harassment. I make an argument in the book that one of the purposes of this is that men are reminding women at work that their primary job is to please the husband. And if they don't please their own husbands, their own husbands may indeed engage in polygamy and that all these things taken together have created an atmosphere in which women very much comply with the new regulation of their lives, comply with the increasing muscularity and and masculinity of Sharia law in Malaysia and believe that all of these rules are indeed informed by the Quran and the Hadith, that this is the law they will comply. I hear again and again in Malaysia that during the NEP generation, people didn't understand Islam fully, and now they do, and now, therefore, they accept a much greater regulation over their lives, their work lives, their personal lives, and that women comply with and accept the increasing gender imbalance that exists both at home and in the workplace. So how did you, as an anthropologist, an ethnographer, and a woman, navigate the increasingly gendered and patriarchal terrain of this corporate Islamic workplace? That's a great question, Nick. In the 1990s, I participated in entrepreneurial Malay Muslim life to its fullest. I talked about business. I met with men in entrepreneurship and, and economic promise during those Mahathir years was everywhere. And people spent all of their time seeking out and talking about potential profit-oriented businesses, people networking and, and building relationships. Very few of them ever were fruitful. But entrepreneurship and business-minded among the NEP educated population, the cosmopolitan population was everywhere. And that meant a tremendous amount of men and women mixing together. And as I said earlier, women were often entrepreneurs themselves, had businesses and managed male employees. And during that time, I found participating in economic life a very free and exciting and open and welcoming existence. I want to mention that one of the things that has always given me access to business 
communities and business culture in Malaysia is that after I was in college, I spent 10 years on Wall Street myself. And so when I first came to Malaysia in the 1990s, when I introduced myself as someone who had business experience um, and business knowledge and had been in that great heart of Western capitalism, Wall Street, people were very eager to talk to me and they were excited to talk to me and they wanted to hear whether or not their businesses were being run along the same management lines as Western corporations. When I came to Malaysia in the first decade of the 21st century, I found things had changed. Not only had things changed for me as a woman trying to navigate my way through a largely male-oriented business culture with men who were powerfully compliant with Sharia, meaning they didn't want to be in an office with me, with the door closed, certainly. They were uncomfortable with my presence if it was in any way informal. I rarely went to lunch or, or shared a meal with a man. Often my conversations in the 1990s with men took place over coffee in a food stall informally. I had no informal relationships with the uh, Sharia corporate elite that I'm talking about in corporate Islam. But even more remarkably, people were no longer interested in me as a representative of corporate or capitalist culture. Whereas in the 1990s, people wanted to know what I knew about business. In my more recent fieldwork, increasingly what people want to tell me is that the West does it all wrong. The West is corrupt. The West creates bubble economies. The West has polluted the environment through its corporate and capitalist endeavors. Western corporations are not interested in social justice. They're not interested in balancing relationships within the hierarchy. They argue that Islam presents all of these things within Sharia. And increasingly, what I found in the conversations I had with the corporate Sharia elite was that they were lecturing me about what Islamic capitalism could deliver the West that the West needed to know. I first started conducting this research in 2008, which was an incredible time to arrive in Malaysia to talk about Islamic corporate life, because that was when the so-called bubble economy in the West burst and had dramatic impact on the rest of the world. What people I met wanted to tell me is, see, you do it all wrong in the West. You create bubble economies. You create the 1%. You create corruption. Your business practices are unethical. Islam has the answer. And so in many ways, instead of being a worthy representative of the, of the West, I became a kind of proxy for everything that was wrong with the West. And in so doing, I got to really get people to, to play out their understanding of how Islamic capitalism, Islamic corporate life, and Islamic structuring of a workday brought about a more ethical, a more responsible, a more transparent, and a more just economy. Many of your readers, let's say people in predominantly non-Islamic countries, and here I'm not only thinking of the United States or parts of Europe, but also people in some of Malaysia's immediate neighbors like Myanmar or Thailand might respond that there's a lot in your book that says that, well, there are things wrong with the West, but it also points to what's wrong with Islam and why anti-Islamic regulations or interventions might be justified. Supposing a member of the online commentariat were to write something drawing on the contents of your book to argue that if you read Sloan White, you'll understand why Islam and also the Islamization of business poses a threat to women's rights, to human rights, perhaps to democracy. How would you respond? 
Well, first of all, I'd like to ask in what ways does capitalism not do that everywhere? I would argue that there's nothing unique going on in Malaysia, you know, despite years and years of equity policies all over the world. Where in the world are women rising to the top of organizations? Where in the world are women not taking on the caring kinds of jobs in human resources and marketing? Where are people not being more controlled by corporate capitalism and the regulations and the rules that happen within the space of work in ways that invade their private and personal lives? I guess my response to that, Nick, is that it's not just Islam that's doing that. I would say that wherever there is a power elite, wherever that power elite is intimately connected with state power, that you are seeing similar kinds of moves that work against democratization, that work against human rights, that work against social equity. The people I talk to claim that Islam has all those answers. I think any reading of my book will tell you that in many ways they run their corporations just like people in the West do, that they're full of people with power, people who have the ability to make decisions about other people's behavior, about their lives, both within and outside of the corporation, create an atmosphere in which it's very difficult for women to succeed, justify the means of making money, claiming that the more of it you have, the more good you can do. In the American fascination with corporate social responsibility, the Western fascination with corporate social responsibility, it's something I talk about at great length in the book, Islamic corporate social responsibility. In Malaysia and in, in the West, corporate social responsibility is very clearly a set of policies that are supposed to engage the public in believing that the corporation is doing good, but that the policies are also very clearly meant to do good for the corporation. I don't think we need to demonize Islam. In this setting, I think it brings about its own concerns about women's rights, human rights, power, hierarchy. But these are refracted and reflected in, in other systems of power everywhere. The book isn't explicitly comparative, but there are many scholars who are doing similar work in Southeast Asia and elsewhere in the world, including some who have taken a great interest in what one scholar has called the economy of affect in the Indonesian workplace. Perhaps we could conclude by having you reflect on how your findings compare to and communicate with studies of similar corporate settings in Indonesia or elsewhere in the region. I think it's really interesting to think about where Indonesia is going in this direction. Indonesia is dramatically increasing its interest in Islamic economics. It's dramatically increasing its Islamic bureaucracy. In many ways, it's following Malaysia's lead in corporatizing and bureaucratizing the collection and the distribution of zakat, something I talk about at great length in my book, and the increasing understanding that Sharia scholars are not just old men sitting in the mosque giving advice, but are these global figures who have a powerful, charismatic impact on business life, on personal life, um, the notion and the meaning of wealth, the notion and the meaning of social justice in Islam. In the past 20 years, you could argue that Malaysia has led in terms of generating Islamic bureaucratic reforms, extending the reach of Sharia, extending the institutionalization of Islam and Sharia, and that Indonesia is following course. Indonesia is very, very interested in 
how these corporations are being created. They're interested in how Sharia advisory works. They don't want to lose out in the Islamic economic market. It's potentially a much bigger Islamic marketplace with many, many more potential customers. And so I have the sense that over the next decade or so, we'll begin to see a much more officialized, corporatized, business-minded Sharia impact on corporate life in Indonesia. So in many ways, I think this is where Malaysia leads and, and Indonesia follows. Now that the book is out, what are you working on? It will be 20 years in the year 2020 since Muhammad first came up with his great plan called Vision 2020 for Malaysia. Vision 2020 was a 20-year plan to ensure that Malaysia development, economic development, was, as Mahathir wanted everything to be, powerful, top-notch, globally relevant, globally impactful, but that also the values that people in Malaysia would have by the year 2020 would be not just non-Western, but anti-Western, that Islamic values, which he believed were sort of universal values, would reflect everything that had come to pass by the year 2020 in Malaysia. So I'm trying to think out really what's happened over the past 20 years. And my next project is to organize a group of political scientists, anthropologists, sociologists, economists to consider where we've gotten in Malaysia by the year 2020 and to think out what those 20 years of vision and values that Mahathir set forth have really put into play. And the second thing I'm interested in is really a much more intimate project. I'm going to study the experience of men and women who have converted to Islam in order to marry a Muslim in Malaysia. A woman cannot marry a man who is a Muslim without her converting. And so that creates a very special category of women who have had to convert to Islam for love, for marriage. And in many ways, the converts, whether they're Christian or Buddhist or Hindu, because Islam and ethnic relations are so fraught in Malaysia, has had to change her whole identity. And so although I've been studying in the halls of corporate power and the cubicles of corporate life, I'd like my next closely ethnographic project to return to people's personal lives, to their homes. I'm explicitly interested in the kinds of relationships that women who have converted to Islam have with their birth families and whether or not they have to separate themselves from their prior identities, their prior family connections and their prior lives in order to fulfill the gendered obligations of their newly Islamic lives. Well, Patricia Sloan-White, I'd like to wish you all the best for both of those projects. And thank you for writing such an eloquent and thoughtful book in corporate Islam and for coming on to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to talk about it. Well, Nick, I can't thank you enough for asking me to. Thank you so much. And thank you, dear listeners, also for joining us. If you are on the lookout for other great interviews to listen to between now and our next episode, then why not visit the New Books in Islamic Studies channel of our network. Recent interviews there include Jeanette Jouely's Pious Practice and Secular Constraints, Women in the Islamic Revival in Europe, and Isa Hussein's Politics of Islamic Law, Local Elites, Colonial Authority, and the Making of the Muslim State. Hey, thank God, sweet, get the tin to vote. Monkey! Hey, thank God, sweet, get the tin to vote. Monkey!